Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional grade industrial supplies. Count on real time product availability and fast delivery. Call clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. On inauguration day, Carlos Curbelo published a letter to Joe Biden. Carlos is a Republican, used to serve in Congress, and his note was something of a plea. It said, basically, don't forget about us Republicans when you're pushing your climate change agenda. Why did you want to do that, like put paper to pen about this in particular? Number one, I live in South Florida, and I'd like to live here the rest of my years, and I'd like my daughters to have the option of living here. So so there's some... There's something personal in it uh, for me. But this is the greatest threat that uh, we face long term. It's the greatest threat the planet faces. And it's a major priority for rising generations of voters. If you're surprised to hear a Republican say things like this out loud, Carlos wants you to know he is not alone. He says, if you look past some of the rhetoric about things like the Paris Climate Accord, you'll see there are more and more Republicans out there, just like him. They helped pass the Great American Outdoors Act last year, which invested in national parks. They tucked clean energy funding into December's COVID relief package. So uh, the baseline is actually pretty good going into the 117th Congress. But these seem like small wins to me, not big wins. Well, everything's relative. Uh, Small wins are better than no wins, which is what we had for many years. As you can probably tell, Carlos is an optimist, which I think is a little weird for someone who used to serve in Congress. Carlos himself might say he's a realist or just ahead of his time. And I'll tell you, we are in a much better place than we were just a few years ago. When I arrived in Congress for the 114th Congress, there were maybe a handful of Republicans who were even willing to acknowledge climate change, who were even willing to say those two words together in a loud, audible voice. Uh, We have come a long way. Today on the show, as President Biden begins to roll out his environmental agenda, using his executive power to conserve federal land and elevate climate change to a national security concern, Carlos Curbelo says he could do even more by working across the aisle. I'm Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next. Stick with us. This episode is brought to you by SAP. First, the bad news. SAP Business AI will not help you generate cubist versions of your family's holiday photos, but it will help you understand which supplier is best to help you roll out your plant-based packaging in Southeast Asia, or identify the training your junior project manager needs to rise up the ranks, or automate repetitive tasks while you focus on big innovations. So you can be ready for the next opportunity. Revolutionary technology, real-world results. That's SAP Business AI. You mentioned a 
arriving for the 114th Congress and meeting your colleagues who maybe didn't have the perspective that you did because you come from a place that's deeply threatened by climate change. Can you tell me about that? Like arriving and and meeting some of the other folks and talking to them about your perspective and hearing theirs? Yeah, I'll I'll tell you uh, early during my time in Congress, probably the first quarter of 2015, I had a meeting with NOAA scientists. And And we should say NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric. Yes, I'm sorry, the government agency that kind of deals with all the data and science with regards to climate and weather patterns. So, yeah, I had always uh, been pro-environment, coming from Florida, growing up near the Everglades. I mean, I think most Floridians under 40 have a pretty healthy and well-formed environmental conscience. So I was always, you know, supporter of sound environmental policy, but I confess that it was not a, a major priority for me. It is not one of the reasons that I decided to run for office. But after that meeting with the NOAA scientists, I said, oh my God, I I have to do something. I have to lead on this, even if uh, I'd rather focus on other issues like immigration and, and foreign policy and taxes. What was it about that meeting that made you think, oh, I have to talk about this. The data and the projections on sea level rise and, and what it would mean for South Florida. I mean, it, it literally could be unlivable if we don't act and if the worst predictions come to be. So I started uh, looking for fellow House Republicans who I could discuss the issue with and, and start building some support and, and trying to draft some policy. And and really, I only found maybe four or five out of 247 House Republicans at the time. So I said, oh, well, we, we, we have another problem in addition to the climate problem. Can you tell me about one of the conversations where someone said, no, I don't, I don't think I want to talk about that? Yeah, there, there was just no interest. There was um, the idea that this was just some liberal idea that uh, well, maybe it maybe it's true, but they're probably exaggerating. Uh, there, there was just a, a a widespread lack of interest in the issue. I, I wouldn't say denialism. Very few people were actually deniers where they said, oh, that's completely made up. But uh, there was just a lot of ignorance and disinterest, I would say. Uh, and, of course, political calculation, especially for members in in more conservative districts, there's no political incentive to engaging on this issue because it, it, it could actually open them to a primary challenge. Now, that's all changing with, with even younger Republicans overwhelmingly supporting responsible climate action. But we were just in a very bad place at the time. And uh, that's when we started working on building the uh, House Bipartisan Climate Solutions Caucus, first ever internal organization to the Congress dedicated to discussing and solving this issue in a bipartisan way. And you had rules for how folks joined the caucus, right? Oh, yeah. We wanted to keep it balanced. You could only join if you joined with a member from the opposing party. So we didn't really know this would happen, but what that did was trigger dozens and dozens of casual, healthy conversations between Republicans and Democrats, in most cases, Democrats approaching Republicans, hey, would you join this group with me? It was co-founded by by your Republican colleague, Carlos Curbelo, and uh, Democrat Ted Deutsch. And 
At first, we had five and five. Uh, then at the end of the 114th Congress, we had 10 and 10, and we thought that was a, a wonderful development. And But then in the 115th Congress, the caucus swelled to 90 members, 45 Republicans, 45 Democrats, and the caucus mobilized to defeat anti-climate amendments for the first time ever on the floor of the House while Republicans were in the majority. So that, that's why I say that 2014-15 was really the low point for Republicans and climate change. We've only grown since then uh, to the point where now you have a, a, a companion caucus in the Senate where there are seven Republicans who have joined seven Democrats. The leader of that caucus is Mike Braun, a senator from a coal state and a very conservative state, but who believes passionately in uh, working in a bipartisan manner to solve this issue. His partner's Chris Coons, who's just wonderful. Delaware senator. So look, we're, we're still far from the climate promised land, but we are a lot closer than we were just five years ago. Did you ever see a colleague change their mind? Like someone you or someone else approached initially and they said, nah, I, don't, I don't know if I want to join this caucus. And then they saw where it was going and they thought, maybe, maybe I should look into this. Yes, definitely. Not immediately, but over time. I would check in with people. Hey, have you given it more thought? And what would happen is they would hear from people back in their districts. There's one group in particular, the uh, Citizens Climate Lobby, who was very active and the, my colleagues would come up and say, hey, yeah, I got a guy in my district who keeps talking to me about your caucus. And yes, a lot of these um, members ended up joining and they ended up contributing. The caucus lost a lot of Republican members after the 2018 election when Democrats won uh, a little over 40 seats. I think it was 41. But uh, now there are new Republicans who are uh, interested in joining and, and I think they should be able to uh, reestablish the caucus with as much symmetry as possible. Like I said, Carlos is optimistic. But you can see what a difficult balancing act climate change can be for Republicans just by looking at what's happened in his old district. His seat is now held by another Carlos, Carlos Jimenez, the former mayor of Miami-Dade County. As mayor, Jimenez signaled support for the Paris Climate Agreement, but he seemed to back off once he started to campaign to go to Washington. Look, the Paris Agreement is important. I opposed uh, President Trump's decision to withdraw from the agreement. I support President Biden's decision to re-enter the agreement. But politically, it is very easy for Democrats to support the Paris Agreement, and it is very easy for Republicans to oppose it. What I tell people is, look, whatever your position on the Paris Agreement is fine. What's more important is the types of policies that you support here uh, in Congress. So if you, if you think the Paris Agreement is unfair or worthless or whatever it is, and then you come and support, for example, a price on carbon with uh, a carbon adjustment component, which essentially would compel the rest of the world to price carbon and to reduce emissions, I mean, that, that's a lot more important. There's a lot of symbolism attached to the Paris Agreement. It's important symbolism. I do think we should send the message that the United States uh, wants to lead in this space, that, that we want to engage the rest of the world. But substantively, the Paris Agreement is less important than 
the policies that we adopt as a country. Hmm. I wonder if we can talk about just one big thing that a lot of scientists say would be necessary to kind of pull us back from the collision course we're on. Like a lot of experts say putting a price on carbon would be a requirement to make the kind of deep cuts in emissions that scientists have been calling for. But it definitely requires congressional cooperation. And that definitely seems hard to get. Like, we're not even talking like a Green New Deal here. We're talking like one element. What do you think it would take for Republican members, members of the caucus that you founded, to get behind something big like that? It's one element, but it is the most powerful and potent element. A price on carbon is by far the most effective instrument to reducing carbon pollution. And can you describe why, like what it would do? Well, it, what, it, what it does is it's transparent and it's honest and it reveals the true cost of carbon pollution. Right now, those costs are hidden for the most part. We're starting to see them pop up. I mean, the city of Miami Beach has invested hundreds of millions of dollars in sophisticated pump systems to deal with tidal flooding. so And that's basically you paying for carbon. Exactly. People are paying for it. Extreme weather events have destroyed uh, different parts of the country. Federal government has paid for that. That means all of us have paid for it. So the costs are hidden, but maybe they're not hidden. Maybe people just don't recognize them for what they are. So what pricing carbon does or what taxing carbon pollution does is it says, okay, this activity we're doing, you know, this power plant here, this is the cost of it operating and polluting the environment. We're just going to recognize that cost in the economy. We're actually not even going to tell that power plant that they have to close, but we are going to tell the public that everyone has to pay because the pollution that that plant is generating has an impact on everyone, not just the people who live in that community or in that state. We are going to recognize that cost. Once that cost is recognized, then the policy trusts consumers, American families, businesses, organizations. It trusts them to make the adjustments and the decisions. And maybe I'll choose wind energy because it might be cheaper. Or maybe I'll, I'll install solar panels or maybe I'll buy an electric vehicle. And that's how we start solving this problem organically, not by government mandate, not because someone said you cannot drive this car, but because citizen Y said, you know what, it, it makes sense for me to buy this electric vehicle because it, it, I'm going to save money and, you know, it's quieter and, you know, whatever else. That's the power of carbon pricing. And it's... You sound excited about this. I am. I, I, I'm the, I was the first Republican in a decade in 2018 to file a carbon pricing bill. It is powerful and it is also beautiful in the sense that it trusts people. It trusts people to fix this. It does not rely on government decrees or regulations or the government compelling people to do anything. It just says, hey, we're, we're doing this. This is the cost associated with it. 
we trust the American people to fix this. And they will. They will. So what would it take to get the rest of your old colleagues in Congress to get on board with that idea? Well, in in about a week or so, a House Republican, Brian Fitzpatrick of Pennsylvania, is filing a carbon pricing bill with Salud Carbajal, a Democrat from California, which would invest most of the revenue generated by the tax on pollution into infrastructure, which happens to be one of President Biden's chief priorities. After the break, bipartisanship doesn't always work. Carlos Curbelo addresses some of the weaknesses of his Climate Solutions Caucus. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. What happens in Ukraine has consequences for what's happening AI. Hello, listeners. I'm Gabrielle Sierra, host of the Why It Matters podcast from the Council on Foreign Relations. Look, the world of international affairs can feel overwhelming and complex, but it also shapes our lives every single day. So it pays to know what's going on out there. Why It Matters is a foreign policy podcast for the rest of us. And with a little bit of humor and a lot of questions, we're here to break down global topics and bring the world home to you. So join us every two weeks on Why It Matters, wherever you listen. One of the problems with Carlos's Climate Solutions Caucus is that being a member, it didn't guarantee how someone would vote. So back in 2017, when Congress passed sweeping tax cuts that included a provision authorizing drilling in the Arctic National Wildlife Preserve, Climate Solutions Caucus members voted for it. And Carlos Curbelo was one of them. The Climate Solutions Caucus has faced some criticism. Like, I'm going to read you something that an advocate at a group called Climate Hawks Vote wrote about this caucus back in 2018. She said, we've been concerned that Republican members are less climate hawks than climate peacocks, posing and strutting with false concern to protect themselves from constituent anger. I wonder what you'd say to someone like that. Let's say there is Republican X who joins the caucus just to appease some constituents or just to try to score some political points. The fact that that individual has joined a caucus, which now will invite people to scrutinize his or her voting record and ask the representatives questions about how that voting record matches up or reconciles with being a member of the caucus, that's already progress. Hmm. Because now there's a greater degree of accountability uh, over that representative. So 
even if they're doing it for the wrong reasons, it's still good for the broader cause. Because if you vote to allow methane pollution, for example, and you're a member of this caucus, now you have a problem. Because in addition to voting in a way that your uh, constituents may disagree with, you're also in a way being dishonest or disingenuous. And, and you're going to be called out for that. So the caucus was, and I think continues to be, a force for good when it comes to the climate debate. And, and, and you know what? We really have to learn from Joe Biden and be pragmatic. If people do the right thing, even if they're doing it for the wrong reasons, and we can get a, an important policy win for our country, we should take it. Yeah. I feel like there's this other issue, which is all of the negotiation is taking place in the shadow of what happened on January 6th. And when I looked over the names of some folks on the Climate Caucus, a number of the Republicans voted to overturn the presidential election, which of course isn't about climate change. But to me, it raises this issue of if you have lawmakers on the caucus with a demonstrated ability to to have these disingenuous arguments, it makes having conversation about other things just that much more difficult. And I don't know how you do it. It is difficult. I have spoken to Republicans and Democrats in the House who are struggling with how to deal with uh, the colleagues who decided to, to vote to reject the election results in, in two states. But here's the, the question that I would pose to kind of frame this. Or Let's say that we were one vote away from a meaningful, comprehensive national climate policy, something that would just reduce carbon emissions in, in, in a drastic way over the next 20 years. And of the people who uh, we could go to for more votes, there are only members who voted to reject the election results. Would we take one of their votes or would we say, no, keep your vote and we're not going to pass this bill? I think most of us who care about climate and the environment and who want to see a solution would say, look, we disagree with what you did, but we could really use your vote here. And, and I understand. I was very disappointed that people voted to reject the election results, but there are other ways to hold those members accountable. We don't have to refuse their votes when we could use them. I know I'm being re really skeptical here, but it's mostly because I was thinking before we got on the phone how weird it is that we're talking about Republicans coming around on climate change, because this wasn't always a red blue issue. Republicans used to agree climate change was an issue and we needed to address it. And when I think about that, I get upset because I think about the time we lost to solve this crisis. Like now we're at a real precipice. I wonder if you think about it that way too. I do. And, it, and it's sad the way it all happened. I mean, Republicans used to lead on climate and the environment. Richard Nixon signed the EPA into existence. Uh, a lot of Republican senators and, and representatives over the decades have made major contributions to climate and the environment. And then in the early 90s, uh, Newt Gingrich 
and the environmental movement got into a spat. So that's when it all started falling apart. And then, you know, the next person I point to who, who had wonderful intentions and, and should be recognized for his commitment over a long period of time to this cause is, is Al Gore. Uh, everything he has done, uh, he's done with the best of intentions. But any time in our country that you're going to advocate for a major policy shift, whether that be in Social Security, in uh, the way we tax, or in climate and environmental policy, I think you should do it with someone from the other party. And I wonder if, if Vice President Gore has, has been asked this question, if he regrets not recruiting a Republican, and, and there were many uh, at the time he could have asked to join him who would have done so happily. I wonder if he regrets not finding a Republican partner for his advocacy, because what happened is the 2000 election was so divisive, not by today's standards, but certainly by 2000 standards, that after the election, he, he adopted this cause and a lot of Republicans throughout the country, I'm not talking members of Congress, I'm just talking about everyday citizens, just kind of assumed that they, that this didn't have to be important to them or, or that they had to oppose it just because Al Gore was the face of the movement for, for quite some time. So I think those are two major events, Gingrich and, and his kind of intentional um, in, intoxication of our politics, and then Al Gore's more innocent failure to, to recruit a Republican counterpart that brought us to the low point that was 2014, in my opinion, and we've been digging out of that hole since. Hmm. Looking back at your time in Congress, is there anything you would have done differently? Because you're clearly so passionate about this issue. I'm kind of surprised you're not trying to get back there. Look, I can tell you that I did everything I could. Confession, I did not run for Congress to solve climate change. I realized I needed to be a part of that once I got there and once I learned more. Uh, and I ended up dedicating a plurality of my time in Congress to this issue, uh, maybe even a majority of my time, but definitely a plurality. I, I said more than, than people cared to hear and uh, <laughs> got to a point where some Republicans would see me coming toward them and they'd kind of walk the other way because they knew what I was going to talk to them about and they really didn't want to talk about it anymore. I, I think we can always, we should always hold ourselves to the standard of we could have always done more. And I'm not saying that, that, I, that there wasn't more I was able to do, but I'm saying that I know I did my part. And now others have to do their part. Carlos Curbelo, thank you so much for joining me. It's been a pleasure. Please keep in touch and please keep following this issue very closely because I'm hopeful and I think we're going to see some pretty significant wins here in the coming months. Yeah, good luck. Thank you. Carlos Corbello is a former Republican congressman. He represented the southern tip of Florida from 2015 to 2019. And that is the show. What Next is produced by Mary Wilson, Davis Land, Daniel Hewitt, and Elena Schwartz. We are led by Allison Benedict and Alicia Montgomery. And I'm Mary Harris. 
go find me on Twitter. I'm at Mary's desk. Otherwise, I will catch you back here tomorrow. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. I'm Dahlia Lithwick, and I'm host of Amicus, Slate's podcast about the law and the U.S. Supreme Court. We are shifting into high gear, coming at you weekly with the context you need to understand the rapidly changing legal landscape. The many trials of Donald J. Trump, judicial ethics, arguments and opinions at SCOTUS. We are tackling the big legal news with clarity and insight every single week. New Amicus episodes every Saturday, wherever you listen.